I'm Chris Holt, Chief Executive of CAC Global, and welcome to the second of a three-part series in our series of Malicious Bytes podcasts. Vegan Murray OBE is a campaigner and the driving force behind the Protect Duty, one of the most significant pieces of legislation that will impact public safety and security in the UK, making it a legal requirement for owners and operators of public spaces to be prepared for terrorist attacks. In 2017, Fegan's son, Martin Het, was one of 22 people killed in the devastating Manchester Arena terrorist attack, and since then, Fegan has been tirelessly campaigning to make a change to our legislation through the Protect Duty, or as it's also known, Martin's Law. In the summer of 2022, I accompanied Fegan on a visit to Washington, D.C., along with Paul Jeffrey from the Perimeter Security Suppliers Association. During our time in the States, we took the opportunity with our U.S.-based partners the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, and the US Security Industry Association, SEER, to invite a small audience to meet with Fegan, giving them the opportunity to ask their own questions. Here we can listen to that question and answer. Some of the topics discussed here involve bereavement, and there is a frank discussion about terrorist violence and how it impacts people and families. I hope you enjoy this exchange between two hugely well-informed individuals, which I think provides some fascinating insights. Intellectually, we understand the, 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 the nature of terrorism, but we don't allocate resources with the, the goal of, can I, can I measure um, public opinion before, you know, sort of over time and understand if after an event... There is greater polarization in society. There's greater hatred for the other. There's greater fear about going on my daily business, right? Those are things that are absolutely measurable. Behavioral and social scientists measure those things all of the time. And we, if we, if we know we can measure the, the actual desired or the, the, the sort of essential nature of, of the intent of the terrorist attack, whether or not it's having that, that effect on public discourse, what programs or policies can we put in place to, to blunt those re, the negative reactions over time. Um, and that might be raising awareness among a population so that when something bad does happen, they have the, the orientation to be able to process what happened uh, and, and they don't overreact. Right? You, you mentioned that uh, the point of terrorism is to make us terrorized. I would argue that the point of terrorism is to, to make us react emotionally in ways that are self-defeating. That could be anger. It could be we overreact in response and actually exacerbate the problem, or it might be fear, uh, right? But any of those those emotional reactions. And so the extent to which we could prepare our public to be resilient for that societal uh, herd immunity that you talked about, um, you're actually disincentivizing the next attack if it doesn't have the same psychological and political impact that the perpetrator wanted. And so how do we think about that as actually the... That's what we're we're aiming for, and if the policy that we're or the or the program or the security measure that we're about to enact, if it doesn't blunt the psychological and political impact of the next attack, we should really second guess if that's the right thing to do, right? With with our dollar, with with our you know with our, our investment. Since nine eleven, we now when we buy an airplane ticket, there is a fee, and if you when you catch a plane in America, you will go in there, and there's a long line, and you have everything x-rayed, and there's no liquids, and all of those things. And so for 20 years, we taxed ourselves. We pay it into the ticket, yep. and then there's whatever the government portion of it is, but we're paying for it. Mm-hmm. Now, the hidden tax is your bottle of water. I buy a bottle of water like that. It's about 30 cents in my store. 
I can't take it on the plane. I have to buy it in the airport. Well, mm -hmm. here's a surprise. It's $3 in the airport. Yep. <laughs> so I have probably spent $2,700 in the last few years unnecessarily on water. Mm -hmm. Hidden tax. If we took that $2,700 and spent it on security, A, I can bring my own water, yep. which would be better. But also, we have a whole twenty-seven hundred more dollars, and, yep. and you know, eighty million people flying a year—it's a real amount of money. So, what, my, my long question for Freegan and my short question for Bill is: Okay, if we're already paying, why don't we just rewrite? Money should n absolutely never be a reason okay. not to put security in place. It so can short, be generated. My short question for Bill is: uh, There's two trillion dollars floating around. There's a billion, a trillion and a half here, and a half a trillion here, and all that. So two trillion dollars. So. Somebody check my math. I believe that two percent of two trillion dollars is forty billion dollars. Both. It's either four hundred or forty billion. <laughs> it's more than what we're spending now on just about everything. Could we please figure out a way to redirect two percent of all that money into things that we know will save lives and all this stuff? And, and go to your point earlier, they don't call it terrorism for no reason. They, nobody calls it anxietyism. And nobody calls it pissed offism. It's, you know, you can all talk mm -hmm. about it. And, and can you just redirect 2% of all that money? Just figure it out. Before you answer, can I also point out that terrorism is actually an, a terror attack. is not an attack against individual individuals. The guy who did the arena bomb didn't say, there's Martin Hett, I'm going to kill him, and there's little Safi Rose, eight years old, I'm going to kill her. He didn't care who he killed. It's a, it's a message that he wanted to convey to the government. And a terrorist attack is an attack against the state. Innocent people are just pawns in a bigger game, and and families suffer. So that before you answer that, so, uh, so Rob, I, I think I would argue that we've spent the last twenty years as a research center, eighteen years, studying adversaries, studying terrorism, and we've spent uh, probably fifteen or twenty percent of the of the the, re the the research dollars that we've had studying responses to terrorism. And I don't think scientifically we know what works, at least not in an open scientific public kind of way. We might have data within private sector organizations about their, their service, their technology, their tool, and its relative effectiveness. But uh, I think we need to do a much better job of studying ourselves uh, what works and then allocating resources rationally based on what works. Um, as a corollary, uh, Gary Lafree uh, stepped away. But we, uh, earlier, Gary Lafree was here. He was the, he's the founding director of START and, and um, a distinguished criminologist uh, at the University of Maryland. Criminology spun out of sociology around 1900. And for 45 years, we studied crime. And then finally, someone said, we should study responses to crime too, criminal justice. Because then we can actually get better. Right? If we study them and us, we, and then the two together, we can actually get better at, at, at uh, preventing crime or addressing crime. And we're trying to do that now at START. We're trying to pivot through partnership to study responses to terrorism much more aggressively in order to start allocating blooded treasure more effectively. I don't think we can do it right now, uh, at least at sort of the federal level, because I don't think we know what works. I want to bring you back to something you said in the beginning about mm -hmm. attitudinal change. Uh, as a fellow psychologist, I can't help but always go back to the, the human factor and how community members are its biggest vulnerability, but also its biggest strength, mm -hmm. right? We hear time and time again after an incident where people say they couldn't believe it happened to their community or to whatever group they were a, a part of. Uh, violence doesn't happen in my town and things like this. Mm -hmm. 
And what you said about changing the channel, I think that's a, a very powerful uh, thing that you shared from your experience. In addition to listening to uh, talks of survivors uh, of, uh, of incidents or, or their loved ones, which I think is probably the most powerful way to relate to, to people, uh, what are some other ways for us to encourage people to stop changing the channel and realizing they are a part of the solution? It can be educate. I mean, that's what I want the government to do. Really, I want them to do a soft touch campaign on maybe on television in cinemas. Just the odd time, the ACT E Learning program uh, that I've done, I, I sat through the forty five minutes, and since I've done that, it's a, every adult should do it. It's accessible to the low, to the general public, but the government isn't telling people, hey, everybody, do the ACT E Learning training. I think it should be taught at schools to 15, 16 year olds they're intelligent enough to take that on board without getting too scared but actually because I did that training I will now for instance when I go through London or Manchester and I see somebody take photos, lots of photos I now automatically turn around and say hey what are you taking a photo of are you somebody bad who's trying to find all the security cameras or security exits? What are you taking a photo of? I do that as a result of done, doing that training. Um, the other thing I do is now I will not sit in a street cafe unless I am convinced that there's no vehicle who can mount the pavement and kill me. I will not sit in a window in a restaurant now because in London and in Paris people got killed by being shot at, at, at through restaurant windows. I will now always sit when I know where the door is. It's simple things like that that I've learned um, through educating myself. So I've gone and sought the information, but that can be taught gradually, bit by bit. And, you know, I believe governments have the ability to run clever campaigns like that to inform the general general public without f frightening them I, I'm genuinely convinced that they can do that but they're not doing it if those kinds of messages can be embedded in yep. in cultural norms mm -hmm. right um, keep calm and carry on yep. stiff upper lip be part of the solution yep. Yep. this is how you can be a, a good yep. Brit right Pull your weight. These kinds of things, right? Do your part, right? The, yeah. All of a sudden, it's a, it, yeah. All of a sudden, it becomes an empowering part of a cultural norm yeah. that we can take care of ourselves and allow our professional security folks to deal with the people who really need it. Because I got, I got me. I'm okay, right? Yeah. And I think that that's really an important uh, concept. The the act, app, although it's a, a security security service initiative, anybody can log online and anybody yeah. can do the course. And they all get a nice little certificate at the end to say they've, they've done the course and passed the course. And it's simple. And you know, when I heard about it, I got my children to do it, my wife to do it, everybody I knew mm -hmm. said, just do it. Because it yeah. gives you that little bit of experience. And you've got something tangible at the end. Mm -hmm. It isn't afraid. It's, it makes them, making people afraid. It's very straightforward. Mm -hmm. But I would urge everybody to have a look at it and actually do the course. Because it's really simple and it's 40 minutes well spent. Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> the other point I was going to make is that a lot of a lot of terrorism is about publicity and notoriety and trying to, to generate um, something. Mm -hmm. And you, you find a lot, certainly worldwide, you might have um, Dave's terror group, but they associate themselves with ISIS, Daesh, um, Al-Qaeda, mm -hmm. to, to try and grab the headlines. Mm -hmm. 
So we were talking about attacking this at the bottom end and trying to work our way through. Do at start, do you try and track through the the group and whether they are literally part of Dish or are they part of our kind or are they a made up version where they're just using that to get some headlines because you know so Dave's terror group is not going to get any headlines if they blow up a little bomb in Mogadishu right. or something. But if they're Daesh or they might get, get headlines but do you track all the way through and try and identify in staff that they're associated with, with ISIS and, yeah. but they're not really and yep. this is this group and track it down and as with you know, the Manchester Arena is, is there anything that, that trails it back to say okay how did this 22 year old become so radicalised where did that root come from and actually go right down the snake mm-hmm. to find the bottom of it and who's behind it because it could be Daesh that are behind it it could just be some mad cleric that decided one yeah. day he wanted to make a name for himself so he's going to wind everybody up by getting right. children effectively to go out and do stupid things so we have a, a corollary data set where for every uh, we look at any attack that is associated or affiliated with the al-Qaeda movement uh, with the Islamic State movement, and now we're starting to do it for uh, white supremacy. So what, what I'm saying is we're trying to not look at the unit of analysis only as an individual or an organization, but also a movement. Terrorism actually functions like a movement. That's actually the, that's the best unit of analysis. It's just the squishiest and the hardest to get your arms around from a data standpoint. But we do that. So, so uh, for example, I can tell you that in the year after we defeated Daesh, they conducted attacks in 36 countries, but not as an organization, as a movement. And so that includes the organizations that throw in, that say, I'm, 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 I'm giving my organizational baya or oath of allegiance to um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi or whomever the leaders of, of ISIS, uh, or the individual who, as is, it was the case in the United States, calls the dispatcher during the active shooter event at the Pulse nightclub and says, I give my oath of allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Now, this individual had no operational connection to ISIS, but was using that as political communication so that people could interpret his violence at the Pulse nightclub as ISIS violence, even though it was an individual acting uh, alone. So we do try to track that as best we can. You can imagine it's not a perfect science. Um, On the second part, uh, in the United States context, we have uh, two different data sets that look at the perpetrators of terrorist attacks, whether those are violent or nonviolent, and the perpetra- a second that looks at the perpetrators of hate crime. And we do we collect 160 base variables about those individuals and any information that might help explain their radicalization trajectory, and then we can apply theories and methods to actually try to understand what, what might explain that individual case. Also, in imperfect science, we don't have the resources to go interview family members and all. So we're looking, we're using primary open source information. We're only using open source information to capture those variables. But I think we have the largest data sets on that topic in the United States. To my knowledge, there isn't a corollary in the UK. Um, I know you've um, built up some air miles over the last um, couple of months yeah. going around the world and, and um, uh, discussing with people around protecting. Is there any particular geography where you've seen something that Either looks a little bit like that easier or anywhere where you've been, where you felt, oh, yeah. this is an interesting approach, yeah. we've got something to learn. I have actually not been too many, uh, to too many places abroad, been to the European Parliament and I've been here. Um, but I have spoken o- online to other yeah. countries. So that's difficult for me to assess because of that. Yeah. Um, but I feel, um, 
What I can say, uh, last week on Tuesday, I was in London at an international conference with people from Canada, the US, Ireland, New Zealand and Australia. And two things occurred to me. First of all, I was really sat in the audience, really listening to everybody and felt really saddened that it's an international problem. Everybody is grappling with the same issue. And the second thing that occurred to me is just exactly how important it is that the whole world needs to come together. The whole world needs to come together and, and combat this together. We need to, we need to work together. Um, what, what saddened me also is that Africa wasn't represented because they have a huge issue with terrorism. It's really ridiculously high there. Um, and it doesn't get reported probably on US news or in, in European news. Um, but, uh, you know, I think collaboration is so, so important. There are differences, um, definitely. Some countries do far more work than others, um, but it shouldn't be like that. It should, we should all work together. May not answer the question you asked. But inquiries are, I mean, they're lengthy, they're costly, but they're really important um, to make change because they often result in recommendations. Uh, for instance, the reason why I was able to see Martin in the morgue and physically actually even touch him, um, uh, and, you know, I was able to, they, they allowed me things. I, I was able to lift the quilt and touch him here and felt the autopsy stitches. So I knew that, that they'd cut his tummy open. And stuff like that would not have been possible had I, had we not had the Hillsborough football disaster and the big inquiry that resulted in that. And it's the, the, the people who died there, now those families had to stand behind a glass screen because the bodies were seen as government property. They weren't allowed, and evidence, they were seen as evidence, therefore people weren't allowed to go anywhere near the bodies. Um, because of that inquiry, we had a totally different experience, and I am really grateful for that inquiry. So inquiries are very important. However, sitting through them, uh, it's one of the, well, it's re-traumatized me completely. I needed therapy because, um, obviously you hear the finest details. You see videos, you see stills, you see photographs of the perpetrator constantly and what, and you hear what has happened. And, um, you know, you go home that night and you see dead people in front of you. You see people dripping in blood in your imagination. So it, it is very damaging from a personal point of view. On the other hand, I really welcome the inquiry because it will hopefully result in, in recommendations. For us as a family, it's too late. Martin is dead. I can't bring him back. But the inquiry will hopefully... Uh, improve things for the future with, you know, I mean the first re the first volume came out about security there were eight or nine recommendations that were done, hopefully, I mean the protect duty is one of them, hopefully people will follow it and, and establish those recommendations as policies so they're very, very important the inquiries, as lengthy as they are I think mental health is is very uh, important to look at because, I mean, that was mentioned in the school shooting just now, how important that is. But I, I think you, you can only take the incel movement, for instance. Now, in America, I think that's classed under terrorism. In, is it? 
but in the UK it, they, they don't accept that it's to do with terrorism but I feel the incel movement is very much linked to mental health because of whatever insecurities that per, insecurities that person may hold uh, that go back to childhood etc and I think if you as a human being are emotionally well enough balanced you will not hold um, excessive anger and resentment and um, hate and all that. We, we may have that all to, to a certain degree, but with, with a, well, a well-balanced individual may not then step out of line and go and commit an act of terrorism or a school shooting, so or a knife crime in Germany, in England, sorry. Um, so it's, it's really important to look at mental health more. I think it's being overlooked and some some of the smaller attacks in in England there was at Manchester Victoria stage train station New Year's Eve two three years ago there was a, a terrorist attack and uh, it it isn't immediately labeled as some uh, people watch the news and oh the, the person had mental health issues but what they're not saying is that actually somebody with mental health issues is actually vulnerable to radicalization or vulnerable to act in a in a um, in an unreasonable way and and do stuff they would normally not do or shouldn't be doing. So there is a a, a big link, I think, to mental health issues. Totally. Um, about ten percent of the population has a known or su- suspected mental health condition. That's a low number because we don't have access to individual medical records unless they they make it into the the public domain. But among those individuals who have a known or suspected mental health history, who then adopt a radical ideology the risk factor for a violent outcome goes up much higher. So 1.6 times or 1.4 or so times more likely to act out violently than the individual right next to them who shares the extremist worldview but is more likely to act out in a nonviolent criminal way. So for violent outcomes, mental health is a very important risk factor. It isn't necessarily the explanation for why the majority of people become extremists, but it certainly can be exploited by recruiters. Uh, it certainly... Um, makes people more vulnerable to answer seeking that that an extremist might you know provide. Um, it's a really really delicate topic and important one though. Um, thank you for your question, Erica. Yeah, it's been my experience that mental health is a variable of uh, vulnerability factors that we have to tiptoe around. Um, my question, I would appreciate a two pronged perspective. Both in mental health, what are the stabilizers that we can? give back to the community to help build resiliency and from the data retention side uh, how do we codify that and how can we replicate it? I think I think school can do a lot um, uh, and I think um this, you know, when you are in school, it shouldn't be just about academia because children spend so much time at school. And if you teach young people, and some schools, for instance, in, in the UK, uh, have yoga sessions, meditation sessions to keep that balance in, in a human being. If, if those kinds of things are also incorporated in education, um, and self-care is being mentioned more, they talk about suicide. They talk about even even the risk of terrorism. You know, um, anything to to you know crime prevention. All those things you can talk to young people about. Young people are so receptive. Mm-hmm. They're receptive to being radicalized if if the the wrong conditions exist. But they're also really receptive to to information, and and they absorb it and and they 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 hold on to it. You know, and when they become teenagers. 
those issues that they're really deep thinkers young people it'll mean something to them but so education I think has a big role to play or could do yeah. I would say I think actually that's something you could study in an experimental design fairly easily so universities yeah. now are are having a hard time keeping up with the demand from the student bodies for mental health services yeah. and the reason is because universities are saying Come get uh, therapeutic services to learn better resilience, uh, to, to, to learn coping skills. It'll make you a better student. It'll make you a better athlete. It'll make you a better... It's like going to the gym. Come go to the... You know, be a better person. Come to the gym. Except that the gym is 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 the clinic where you learn like important coping skills, and sure enough, kids say, "Well, I want to, I want to be more resilient, and I want to have better coping skills." So they they take it up. You know, if you, conversely, if you look at a university that isn't sort of talking about it in those terms, and look at the uptake of mental health services, it'll be, it'll I think be much lower. That would be my hypothesis, and you could test that out. I think fairly easily. Whether that relates to less violence, sort of on the back end, is a much longer form kind of you know uh, study. But I actually think that's a that's a measurable thing, right? That's something that we we could, if we wanted to, generate an evidence base on, and then create best practices. Uh, Ryan, Bill's uh, mentioned that I work at the Center for Prevention Programs and Partnerships at DHS, which we do targeted violence and terrorism prevention here. Uh, so I'm a prevention person, uh, and we're in a room full of protection people, and you helped us blend these equities really well, and I think this is a really interesting conversation for us to have. We talked a lot about youth during your presentation, sometimes from a threat vector, and um, I think it's important to note that young people are not a threat just because they're young, um, and I think it's really interesting that your solution, you've, you've proposed a solution where young people get to work in the security industry, where you invigorate the industry. So can you guys speak a little bit more about how as opposed to blending prevention and protection, you're integrating those two into protection spaces because I think this is an audience which is likely to have opportunities to do that kind of work in the future. Certainly the industry, security industry, is a good one because if you encourage young people to have a, a proper, decent career in it, and I know some people who have entered that career who were studying alongside me. I was the older student, so they were a lot younger. They love their job. They absolutely love it. Uh, so th- there's definitely scope for that. Um, and the prevention side, obviously, um, Again, schools have a role to play in that. They can make people more resilient, but they can actually also help with the with the um, um, preventative side of things. Part of protect, not all of protect, but part of protect is about hardening targets in a physical sense. So the built environment, the, the you know, making a, a location both safe but also inviting and welcoming. And I think there's an opportunity there to add elements of design which tell stories. Uh, and there, there's an there's a charity uh, based out of New York called I'm Your Protector, and they create art exhibits that tell alternative narratives to the narratives that you might hear from ISIS or the KKK. And so, for example, there's art exhibitions where they'll have pictures of Germans who protected uh, Jewish uh, ind- individuals from the Nazis, pictures of Palestinians who protected Jews or Jews who, pal- who protected Palestinians. And, and there are these really emotive physical exhibits that show, that, that are, are the alternative narrative to this 
we have to, we've always been at war with these people and we always need to be at war with these people kinds of black and white ideologies. Uh, and so there, there could be a way of storytelling within the built environment that blends sort of the protect and the, and the prevent. And I had never thought about that before, but it's a really interesting one. That's just my first, uh, stab. My question for a therapist who now understand, uh, has incredible experience on the, the response side. Do you think there is a way to better harmonize mental health providers? especially now at a time where I think this is a really imminent concern in order to, to engage in prevention work? I think there isn't. The, first of all, there, there are not enough therapists simply both in the UK and in America. There's a, there's a shortage of therapists in particular who understand trauma, for instance, mm-hmm. or who can work with young people. But I think that is, again, an industry that needs to increase their uptake to deal with it. The pandemic certainly didn't help, um, so it, it's multiplied that by so much. But I think, um, again, the, I keep going back to the word communication. If different industries to do with mental health, education, social work, again, come together, and there's got to be, it's a bit like Culp's learning cycle, isn't it? Continuous, let's do this, let's evaluate it, let's try something else let's do it again, let's evaluate again, and it's, it needs to be a constant cycle of improvement um, yeah. but it has to be and it links in together with communication and collaboration and, and that just has to happen more, I think To your point about professionalizing the security industry yeah. There are now you can you can get a job at the University of Maryland on our behavioral threat assessment team as a law enforcement officer, as a psychologist, uh, as a social worker. There are professional opportunities that are well esteemed by your peers. And if we, as we formalize those opportunities, as we formalize um, uh, having uh, mental health professionals in in in, law, in in ride-alongs in squad cars to deal with uh, individuals who might be going through a traumatic you know uh, might be in crisis. So that this, that doesn't result in an officer-involved shooting; it involves in a de-escalation. If we, we provide those professional opportunities in which which are interdisciplinary and and then celebrate them professionally as success stories, can we professionalize that and and normalize that kind of work? Create an incentive for students to want to pursue those careers because of how important they are. Uh, but absent opportunity, you know, uh, there's really I don't even know as a student that that's a potential career for me. So, uh, your point about creating the incentive structure, I think, is really important. Yeah. Um, let us all please thank uh, our our guests, Fegan Murray, uh, and thank you all for for being here today.